After we survived Amazon, we were Teflon coated. Like who's next? There's there's nobody as deadly as Amazon. Now, I was terrified during that time, but it wasn't quit terror. It was fight terror. I, I, I fly airplanes. One of the things they teach you if you're a pilot, you have to fly the plane. Like, I don't care if an engine's on fire, you gotta fly the plane. And some people can't do that. Some people, when they are confronted with a problem, freeze up. And if you are that sort of person, they don't let you become a pilot. And, and we didn't freeze at Square. We had some, you know, sort of giant companies coming after us and we didn't freeze, which I think is the reason we're still here. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. In this episode of Gray Matter, we'll discover a secret to success that combines determination with innovation. We'll hear how quickly technology catches up with the demand of the market for both the customer and the seller. Hi, I'm John Petrolis, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. This week's idea is the digital payment company, Square. We connected with co-founder Jim McKelvey to discuss the early days of the company and what he learned while facing their biggest competition, Amazon. Jim spoke with Gray's Executive Director of Social, Kenny Gold, to discuss what started as a clear problem. Jim couldn't accept a payment for his business as a glassblower. Square eventually grew into a lifeline for small businesses and artists. Jim, along with co-founder Jack Dorsey, yes, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, founded Square in 2009. Square is a publicly traded company with a market cap of over $100 billion and over 3,000 employees. And you've certainly interacted with Square at your neighborhood coffee shop or with a purchase from a local artisan. In 2013, Square developed the Cash App, which allows users to transfer money to each other quickly. Jim is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, and artist. He's the author of the book, The Innovation Stack. And in 2011, his iconic design for the Square Card Reader was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. Jim lives in St. Louis, Missouri, where he serves as the Deputy Board Chair for the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. This is Jim McKelvey. My idea was to make my phone into a credit card reader. And my partner, Jack Dorsey, and I uh, started a little company called Square to do that. Um, and that idea was based on a problem that I had, which is that uh, I, as a small artist, couldn't sell some of my work. So I'm a glass blower. I sell glass stuff that nobody needs. So I lost a sale because I couldn't take an American Express card. And I looked at my iPhone and I said, this thing ought to be able to fix that problem. And so I called Jack and said, this is what we should do. And that was the beginning of Square. And how did you connect to Jack and how did you know that was the right partner? So Jack and I had already started um, uh, discussions about uh, forming a new company. So Jack uh, used to work for me at another company that I have to this day. And uh, we had reconnected right after he got kicked out of Twitter the first time. So they kicked him out uh, about 2008, right around Christmas, uh, 2009. And Jack came back to St. Louis. We're both from here. And we started talking about stuff we could do. And Jack said, well, why don't we start a new company together? And I was like, yeah, cool. What do you want to do? He's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And so the only thing we knew was that it had to be somehow involving 
like iPhones and mobile devices because they were brand new. And we could do nothing in social media. So the whole world of social media was sort of off limits because Jack had just been, you know, Twittered. So that was, um, that was what led us to Square. So the idea comes to you. Super simple. Yeah, simple idea. Simple idea. And what surprised you most after you, re- like the idea comes to you and then you're thinking through it all. Is there anything about the idea that surprised you? Yeah. So the first, I, I'm always amazed when I have an original idea or, or a semi-original idea. I always assume somebody smarter than me has figured it out before. So whenever I have any sort of glimpse of originality, I'm a little bit surprised. And I was surprised that nobody had built a decent uh, payment system for small businesses. And I thought, well, why didn't they do this? And I guess the second thing that was surprising was how difficult it was going to be to do that. Because I didn't understand anything about banking. Jack and I had no experience in the payments world. So we were completely naive. And when we went into it, we thought, oh, you know, a couple of weeks, we'll be able to knock this thing out. And it took a year and a half. Wow. So you so you and Jack decide to pursue the idea. Who are the other people that you bring on board to help bring it to life? What are some of this? Who are this, the surrounding cast? So the first guy we hired, uh, Tristan O'Tierney, who, who's no longer with us. Tristan, uh, Tristan died. He was our first hire, and he was an iPhone programmer. And we knew we needed an iPhone programmer. Like, no matter what we did, we were going to use an iPhone programmer. So we actually hired Tristan before we had the idea down. So we didn't, as a matter of fact, Tristan came to work his first day expecting to work on something else. And uh, we said, no, no, we're going to do payments. So, uh, so there was Tristan and then a cat. I quickly hired a guy, uh, Sam Wen, to help me build the decode software for the iPhone, uh, uh, for, well, basically for the square reader, that little white thing that plugs into the headset jack. Um, and that was sort of the core team for the first couple of weeks. And then uh, Robert Anderson, a designer, joined us. He was 19 years old. Um, and then we picked up uh, Cameron and Randy uh, as two programmers. And that was sort of the, the core at the beginning, plus my wife. So she was my fiance at the time, but Anna was with us the whole time. Uh, and she was an attorney. So she was like getting all the paperwork that we had to go. You know, just she was like, she, I, like she was the most professional person there. So, you know, whenever the, something needed to be notarized, you know, we'd kind of give it to Anna. That's amazing. Um, in term, okay, so that's the core crew. Outside yeah. of the core crew, who were the biggest supporters? Who who was who were the the people behind the curtain saying this is going to be a thing? There were uh, a half dozen people, you know, friends and family that we showed it to. Uh, my friend Howard Lerner was actually pretty critical in the whole thing because Howard was one of my sort of skeptical friends. I've known him since college, and he's one of these guys that can tell me when something I'm doing is insane. And so I would talk to Howard a lot. As a matter of fact, Howard flew out to California to sort of brainstorm with Jack and me. So he was, he's kind of bummed now because we didn't give him any stock or anything. But, uh, you know, Howard was there, you know, in the beginning. And, you know, he was one of these guys who uh, I would spend all this time with Jack and I needed somebody who was not in the space to sort of validate ideas. So I would come back to St. Louis and sit down with Howard and it's like, here's what happened this week and here's what we're doing. And, you know, he would just beat me up because Howard also had a small business. He had a coffee shop. I love it. That's amazing. I, I keep thinking about how simple the idea is. 
and that you grab the people around you and you say, we're going to lock arms and make this thing. So how long from the glass shop moment and, and the, and talking to Jack about making a building a company to the first prototype being out in the world? Three weeks from the moment I had the idea till we could take money off somebody's credit card and shove it in my bank account. It took three weeks. Three we weeks? Had, yeah. Hardware, <laughs> software, money moving. It was totally illegal. Like it broke. I think I stopped counting at 17 laws and rules and regulations. But like we were we were highly uh, uh, unorthodox in the way we got it working as far as the banking system was concerned. But uh, all all the, the money moved, the hardware worked, the iPhone did what it was supposed to do. Like everything worked. Uh, in three weeks. And then it took us a year and a half to get compliant with or change uh, those 17 laws. That's, I'm sure Anna was thrilled with all the laws being broken. Yeah, yeah. She <laughs> she didn't she didn't quit her job until way later. Uh, she was kind of, you know, she was still working and she was had a nice steady income. And uh, it was me who was out there kind of going, well, uh, you know, you might want to save some bail money. Uh, so... <laughs> And then, so three weeks to that first prototype being out in the world working, a year and a half until the idea is out fully compliant. At what point in the process were you like, we have something, this is going to be a thing? So I knew it after we'd released the product and I was in New Orleans in the back of a cab. And this cabbie was so excited because he could get paid with a credit card. He was like, I can take a credit card. I can take a credit card. And he was, he was basically pitching me on my own product. And uh, Kenny was so weird because I was, um, you know how, like when you meet somebody, there's that moment when you can sort of fess up who you are. And that moment had passed with this cabbie. So I was just kind of along for the ride, I guess, literally. Um, but he started like explaining my product to me and he kept making all these mistakes. He's like, well, it's completely free and they don't charge you anything. I was like, well, no, actually we do charge you a little bit. And there's like, <laughs> he's like, and you can do this and you can do this and it works on it. And I was like, well, no, that's not true. But like, he got the basics, right? Like the, the, the gist of the whole thing, which is like, I'm a small guy and now I can get paid. And he was so excited about this. And I was just, you know, in the back of a cab in New Orleans. And, and I was like, man, if I'm being pitched right now, this pitch is probably being said, tens of thousands of times today by various people grabbing their friends going, look what I can do. Look what, look what I look this, at this tool I've got, man, I'm going to go into business. Um, so that's, that's sort of when it, it clicked for me. I love that. Uh, so let's talk about the name. Where did the name square come from? What's the, what's the origin story? So we were trying to think of a good name. <laughs> And we came up with the name Squirrel. So actually, Anna, my, my girlfriend, and Jack were sitting in uh, the, the car, and I went into like a quick quickie mart to buy a bunch of caffeine. And by the time I came out, uh, they had named the company. They were like, how about Squirrel? We're going to call it Squirrel. And we were like, cool. So Jack actually got Squirrel.com from some guy who like owned the domain. And we were all set to do Squirrel. And then Jack goes out to Apple and finds that Apple in their cafeteria had a had a POS system, point of sale system called Squirrel. This Canadian point of sale system. You probably never heard of it, but it was like, oh, my God, that's way too close to what we're doing. So we had to dump Squirrel. And and much like Twitter in the early days was, was called Twitch. 
So the way Twitter got its name was uh, they called it Twitch. And then they thought, well, that's a little weird. Uh, so they started looking through the dictionary and Twitter is close to Twitch in the dictionary. And so Jack literally did the same thing with Square. He started with Squirrel and then he came up with Square and he said, Square sounds really nerdy and boring. And he says, I think that's a really good vibe for a payment company. I was like, yeah, that's great. So we got the domain Square up. And to this day, you know, we feel that Square is sort of this right brand because we're not trying to be flashy. We're not trying to be noticed. We would love it to just fade into the background. Yeah. And did the product design precede the name? Was it always a tile? No, it was it was first an acorn. So my original uh, square reader, what was now the reader, uh, was originally shaped like a nut, like a like an acorn. And I crammed all the electronics, including the spring, into an acorn. And um, and actually, when we changed the name to square, I just drew a square around the, the piece of plastic that I was molding. And it's like, oh, this will be easier. You know, a square. <laughs> <laughs> Much simpler. Is the, yeah. that, the acorn, is that the one that's in MoMA? No, in no, movie? it's the square that's in MoMA. The uh, square is in MoMA. Estonian. Yeah, that was... Uh, and that was actually the second version that got into MoMA. The first one I made was ridiculously small. It was even smaller than the one we sell today. Um, and it was it was like a sugar cube. The, that must have been for for a glass artist and for someone who you know started off in in that space. Having something in MoMA must be pretty incredible. It's it's kind of insulting that I've been blowing glass for thirty years and they take a piece of plastic that I designed. I mean, that was that. I mean, I, I could I could think of it positively or I can be insulted, you know, either way. OK, <laughs> well, we're going to go glass half full here. Yeah, OK, I'm, <laughs> I'm flattered. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So we always talk about greatness and and success coming out of failure. Was there any moment in the process where you had to overcome some level of failure uh, in order to because I mean, three weeks is a pretty quick ramp up to proof of concept. Uh, well, but, I mean, there was a lot of failure in those three weeks. I mean, Sam was pulling all nighters, uh, getting the decode working. I was pulling all nighters, building the hardware. Uh, I don't know what Jack and Tristan was doing because they were in California and, you know, Sam and I were in St. Louis, but um, I'm sure they were, you know, breaking their necks to do what they needed to do. So, and, and there's a lot of failure along the way. I mean, but like once it's working, once the base product was working, we were still basically in a failure mode for a year and a half because we couldn't legally do it. So, you know, it was all failure until finally MasterCard and Visa gave us permission to do what we wanted to do in the first place. And we needed that permission. It wasn't like we were going to be able to, uh, you know, route around uh, the major card networks. We were completely dependent on them. And if they'd said no, we would have been dead. But I, th I think the biggest potential failure was... Uh, about three years in when Amazon decided they wanted our whole business. And when Amazon wants they wants your business, what they do is they copy your product and they undercut your price. And then they just watch you die. And that was the moment where I felt we were dead because up until that point, no company that was a startup had ever beaten Amazon. So we looked first for, you know, companies we could emulate who survived Amazon. And, you know, the closest we got was, um, you know, I guess, I guess it was Zappos. So we went to talk to Tony Shea and Tony was like, well, I just let them buy me. They were going to crush me. You know, like, it's like everybody gets <laughs> up at Amazon's uh, at the door. 
Um, but uh, we didn't. We just kept doing what we were doing. And a year later, Amazon gave up. They, they got out of the market. And so that was the moment where I thought we were in the most trouble. It turns out we had this thing that I didn't understand. It's called, I, I call it an innovation stack now, but like we had this, this magical thing that protected us. And I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I was so fascinated by what happened to Square that I was like, well, this can't be just an accident. This isn't just us getting lucky because nobody gets lucky against Amazon. Plus, we hadn't done anything. Like, if we'd actually made some sort of bold move and then that had worked, I'd say, oh, well, we were bold. And we we didn't do anything. Like, we didn't change anything. Didn't change our price. Didn't change our marketing. Didn't, I Like, we, we basically ignored the deadliest competitor on the planet. And it worked. And I was like, how the hell did this work? So um, that's what led me to do all the research and write the book and meet Herb Kelleher. Like that, that sort of unfolded the next three years of my life was answering that question of why did we survive? I love when you talk about it in the book is going nose to toe with Amazon. <laughs> uh, that, that was that uh, I highlighted that we deal all the time with challenger brands and some and that feeling of being nose to toe with the with the Goliath is kind of fascinating. It's a weird feeling. It's very scary. Kind of fun, but very scary. Let's talk about the innovation stack a little bit. Can you walk us through the pieces of Square and the innovation stack that helped make it the product and company that it is today? So, so an innovation stack is this thing that I found at the core of all these improbable survivors. So if you look in any industry, like almost every industry, but you know, I studied about 25 different industries. And at the core, at the beginning of the industry, when the industry first begins, the company at that core has this thing that always kind of looks the same. And I coined the term innovation stack because it, it's like this messy assemblage of different inventions. It's not one invention or two. It's usually 10 or 20 or 50, you know, but it's, it's, it's the way problems actually get solved in a certain set of circumstances. And those, that set of circumstances is when, for whatever reason, you're prevented from copying. So if you can copy what works, you end up looking, you end up building something that looks like everybody else's. If you can't copy what works, then you're left with this really diminished set of options. And one of your best options is to invent, to try new stuff. And invention, I think, has been taught incorrectly. At least it was taught to me incorrectly which is that it's, you know, some sort of eureka moment. Like there, there's all this sort of mythology around invention. But if you actually look at the people who do it, uh, one, they're not experts. Two, uh, they're, they're probably not even volunteers. They're not these sort of bold people who say, well, I'm going to do this because I'm a badass. You know, they, they're probably people who are afraid for their survival. They're literally in terror. And yet they continue to try new stuff. And eventually this collection of stuff worked. That collection is the innovation stack. And the reason I coined the term is because the way things happen when you have an innovation stack are in, in many cases fundamentally different than the way it happens when you're just a normal business. When you're a normal successful business that have, has formula that work, like, man, it, it just looks like a totally different uh, playbook. And so I wanted a playbook for this world that I'd been living in um, briefly. I mean, I, you, you, this is the funny thing. You, you don't spend your whole life with this. You spend a year or two. You spend a month or two. Like you, there's, a, there's a period of time 
where these rules really dominate your life. And then at some point, your company becomes so big that the innovation slows down and you go to more traditional ways of managing. I love that. And it's a, if you haven't checked out the book for those listening, the innovation stack, building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time is Jim's book. And I really enjoyed it. You know, as someone who works in creativity and business solutions all the time, it's a great way to frame, uh, thinking and, and realize that, uh, Sometimes you have to you have to break the wheel and bring in some uh, interesting and and different inspirations to help sort of create and and build accordingly. If you could invent a time machine, and I'm sure if you and Jack got together, you probably could get pretty close. Uh, and you were able to go back to day one. Uh, you know what would you have done differently? Wow. So I've thought about this because I'm one of these people who like relive stuff at night. I think about it. Um, I wouldn't change a thing. Now we hired some people that didn't work out. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes that didn't work out. Uh, I wish we'd patented more of the core technologies that we'd invented, but you know, ultimately we did and patents don't help that much, you know? So, uh, I, I wish like I would have done things a little bit differently. Um, knowing what I know now, but I wouldn't even go back in time in my time machine with today's knowledge because I think it might mess something up. Like, I can't tell you why Square worked. I can give you this sort of rigorous statistical analysis of the innovation stack and how it's brought, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of companies into these sort of world-dominating positions. Um, but there's a luck factor, too. You know, some of this is timing. Some of this is luck. Some of this is maybe that person that you hired and then fired and who pissed you off enough so that you, you know, went and did something crazy. Um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. So if there was a time machine, I certainly wouldn't set it for 2009. I love that answer and no regrets also. It's like you do it in with the variables you're given and you succeed and no need to change it. Uh, so... You talk about some of your hobbies. You fly, you blow glass. You, when we first started talking, you talked about, um, you know, building uh, checker or chess boards with your with kids. Yeah. Where where do you, or at least the attempt to, um, where where's that place that you go when you need inspiration? Where where if you want to get away and think, what's the What's the process like? I can fly a plane or I can blow glass. And both of those activities are very focused activities. Like my mind does not wander when I have a piece of glass in my hands. My mind does not wander when I have a small plane under my control. In neither case can I let my mind wander. Because, I mean, in the case of the glass, it'll end up on the floor if you ignore it for a couple of seconds. Um, and in case of an airplane, you'll end up on the ground, uh, which is, you know, you don't want objects falling. I guess that's my, that's my big theme here. I don't like objects to fall, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, both of those places are ones where if I spend a day flying or, uh, making glass in the studio, I will come back drained, but happy with my head clear in a way that it doesn't get clear in like an office day. Are you a whiteboarder? Are you a post-it noter? Are you a, like, just drawing on an iPad? What's the, where, where, where are Jim's ideas being sketched out? Um, I grab whatever piece of paper's around. I'm back of envelope. Um, 
you know, I will draw on my kid's shirt if I have to. Um, just like whatever is around. Cause the ideas are fleeting, you know, <laughs> like every once in a while I get an idea and I'm like, Oh my God, I got to write on something. Um, but when I was a kid, I used to draw on lampshades. Um, when I was a little boy, like I used to have these, you know, these flare markers. I remember my mother used to throw out every flare marker because they, they, they were just too deadly. And I would write on walls and I would write on lampshades. Um, just, uh, yeah, watch out. <laughs> uh, well, at least we know if your kids decide to draw on a lampshade, you're not going to say no. You're going to encourage it, right? I don't get to take the moral high ground with my children on anything. <laughs> so, Jim, uh, you you talk about how uh, you can use innovation and creativity to solve problems. What are the next set of problems that Jim will be solving? I I like the idea that the thing that I'm doing consumes my attention. And that's, I mean, you talked about earlier about, you know, flying and glass blowing. Those are the two things I do where my mind doesn't wander. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on, um, kind of half-heartedly right now, but I, I think it's an important problem, is a cheap diaper for the world. Like about a third of Americans have trouble affording diapers. And if you're poor, uh, the diapers cost even more because you can't buy in bulk and you buy at these, you know, dollar stores that really rip you off. And um, this causes a cycle of poverty to start. Like, usually single people who are poor are okay, but single parents who are poor are in real trouble. And poverty starts when you can't afford diapers, therefore you can't afford daycare, therefore you can't hold down a job or a good job. Or Like, it's, it's a real problem. And diapers are 25 cents a piece right now. And I think that's insane. I think I should be able to make a diaper for a fraction of that. So I'm doing a bunch of material experiments to see if I can get some sort of really cheap absorbent material that isn't going to clog up the landfills and I'll hold a cup of pee. This is the last one. Uh, and hopefully it's for all of the serial or all the budding and or serial entrepreneurs sitting at home listening to something like this. But what would you say to someone like you? who has an idea that's as good as yours, but might not know where to start. So I'll give a long answer here because it's a serious question. I think you start with a problem because that gives you something to focus on. Start with something you care about. The caring about it is helpful because if you care about getting rich or you just want to be successful and have a company, those are pretty weak motivators. But if you care about solving a problem, that will give you much better focus and it'll give you energy when it doesn't look like you're going to be rich. Like Jack and I never thought that Square was going to be as successful as it is. I think we never realized that it was going to be this, you know, I don't know what it is now, 100 billion plus, I don't know. But it's a, it's a weak motivator to, to work for that. Um, but solving a problem, strong motivator, at least in the folks that I work with. Um, and then I think the second thing is that as you're solving that problem, you have to, put that problem into one or two categories. Is it something that the world has figured out how to do? In which case you should be copying. You should not be inventing everything if somebody else has invented it better and refined that invention for 20 years and you can just hire or go to school or you know emulate what they did. That's a good way to solve a problem that's already been solved, right? So you're opening up a coffee shop. Hey man, that's a solved problem. Go figure out how the best people have done it. You know, Go to the trade show. Um, but then if if it turns out your problem has not been solved, if you're doing something that is, you know, for the first time, 
then what you have to recognize is that you are going to be very alone. And not just alone in the sense like you can't copy other people's solutions, but alone in the sense that the people who love you and care for you and want you to succeed are going to be worried about you because they're going to be looking through their lens of, you know, most solutions have been invented by others. And they're going to say, Kenny, what the heck are you doing? Kenny, why are you doing that? Kenny, come back, come, come, come back to the herd, man. Like you're, it's, you're going to lose a limb out there or your life. Like we want you to be safe. Please stop what you're doing. And that's the world that you'll be in for as long as you decide to do things in an innovative way. And, and I use innovation in the title for my book, not as this word that I sort of like. It's this last resort. I don't like it. It's not pleasant. It's sometimes necessary if you're not willing to quit, but it's rarely this sort of fun, you know, brainstorming whiteboard session. So I would say if somebody was starting out, uh, just recognize that line, that line between when you can copy and when you should invent. Wow, Kenny, Jim's such an interesting guy. With all he's done, what stuck out to you the most when you were talking to him? The ease in which the idea actually came to life, it literally was identify a problem, come up with a solution. The tech worked pretty quickly. You know, Jack was on board and helped make sure that things moved really smoothly. It was a close, tight-knit team. And it just like spread like wildfire. It was it was really spectacular. Um, you know, we really pressed Jim to talk to us about pitfalls and issues and obstacles. And they just smart idea, knew what they were solving for, simple in its execution, and it's in MoMA. I mean, like, yeah. it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty pretty ridiculous. Uh, but it was, um, I think most surprisingly, was how much closer I am to Jack now in terms of six degrees of separation and what that does for my street cred in the social media space. Well, it doesn't hurt. When you think about, obviously, it's the right idea, right time, beautiful incredibly elegant execution and you know it doesn't hurt to have the right influencer and backer and built-in distribution when you have the right partner like he had in jack absolutely and one of the things that i'll never forget is uh jim talking about how uh he knew square was a thing when he was in a taxi cab and someone turned to him and asked him to pay with a square uh reader and was marveled in what it was doing for this taxi cab driver and his ability to be like, yep, yep, I know that. Um, so it was, it was awesome to see that come to life and uh, great story and, and just really world-changing idea. God, what, what a great moment. He's empowered so many people and so many artisans and local shops and small businesses to function and be able to do it on their terms. So it's just a great idea. And obviously we're all interacting with it. So he's done so much. Tell us how we can learn more about Jim. If you really want to hear about how Jim took on Amazon, you should read his book, The Innovation Stack. He talks about that and so much more. You can also go to his website, jimmckelvey.com and learn more about his books, his glass blowing. He's on Instagram at jimmckelvey one and has a really OG Twitter handle at the number 2000 F. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Kenny. So that does it for us this week. The podcast team and I would like to thank Nina Nacholino. If you'd like to hear how other creators, founders, and inventors thought up their ideas, 
Follow this feed wherever you listen to podcasts and catch up on all past episodes. Feel free to reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell a friend about our show and help us share these great ideas. Thanks for listening to Gray Matter. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrullis, produced by Danielle Hunt and senior producer Joey Scarillo. Mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios with post-production support from Ned Martin and Robin Frank. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, Gigi Vera, Gabby Piatek, Erica Vander, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.